0: Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, as we read verses 16 through 30. Hear now the word of God. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life. Keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask our God to bless his word. Lord, this morning we are dealing with challenging things because in this passage you take aim at things on, that on some level are near and dear to our hearts. And yet you love us enough to call us to let them go. We ask you that you would help us to hear you clearly we ask for your spirit's help in jesus name amen Amen. you may be seated i'm very worried about us and when i say us i mean every person in this room and every person that we meet certainly in western society And here's what worries me. I'm I'm worried that while we live in one of the most materially wealthy times in human history, we are all of us tempted to believe that apart from the creator, we will somehow manage to find some satisfaction. We live in the afterglow of the industrial revolution. More than any other time in human history, we have experienced an explosion of economic growth that has affected everyone in our society. Even those at the lowest end of our society have comforts and things that make kings of the past look like beggars. And here is really what worries me. I I worry that as much as we say that things can't make us happy, that things can't satisfy, that deep down we kind of believe they can. And we spend much of our lives resisting the belief that apart from God, we can be fulfilled. Uh, That is that's where gravity pulls us. It pulls us toward things and the belief that those things will satisfy us. And we have to fight it like we fight gravity. Um, We have conquered. Think of all the things we can do. Think of all the achievements we have. We've conquered air. We can fly all over the world. Um, We have made such advances in medicine and technology that we can live very long lives uh, and after a while of conquering all of these obstacles that human beings have in their midst, we can start to believe that all of life can be engineered and all of life can be conquered if only we figure out the right trick, the right algorithm. That belief feels so modern. I also love Jerry Lee Lewis. No, wait, man, I don't. I might have gotten that wrong. Anyway. Um. But we we start to believe that we can figure it out. We start to think that even happiness can be engineered. That belief, you, we we think of those things as modern, right? And yet today's passage reminds us that success, public respect, money, things are have never been enough to stave off feelings of hopelessness or fill our spiritual void. Uh, I'm not talking about enjoyment. I'm not. I'm talking about completeness right we have things that we enjoy and i think it would come it would seem like a very shallow thing for me to say it would seem like a very shallow thing for me to say well money can't make you happy well we we all know that we would feel happy if we had more money i think we would anyway so i'm not talking about enjoyment i'm talking about completeness i'm talking about true satisfaction we enjoy things they make our lives easier while introducing problems of their own but the reality is that money And success and even an upstanding public persona do nothing to fill the true spiritual vacuum in every human heart. This is true from the poorest beggar to the wealthiest king. Um, Years ago when Boris Becker won Wimbledon, uh, he multiple times he said this. He said, I had won Wimbledon twice, once as the youngest player to do so. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. I was like those movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. Um, There was another famous person. Um, It's actually been a while since I've seen a novel from him. Maybe he's still writing, but it's a novelist named Jack Higgins. And Jack Higgins was asked what he wished that he had known as a boy. And the answer he said, which you have probably heard this before, he said that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Sometimes you need to hear from those who have those things that you think will make you happy so that they can remind you that it's not true. That, they, that they're still empty. Today we meet a man who wants to have it all. He wants to have money. He wants to have a good public reputation. But he also wants to have the spiritual void in his life filled. He wants to have all these things plus Jesus See, he's building his whole life into the full package. He thinks he can have it all. But when he comes to Jesus, here's what he discovers. He discovers that if he wants to have his heart completed and filled up, he has to let go of those other things. He can't have them all. So what does Jesus do? Well, first, Jesus exposes the danger that he's in. This is our outline for today. First, he exposes the danger. Second, he delivers the warning. And then third, he offers the hope. And in in all of these three points, what we're going to see is that only by the power of God can any of us actually find eternal life or satisfaction. Uh, The first point is the danger. We see the danger in verses 17 to 22 as the man approaches Jesus. You know, by by all appearances, this guy seems to have everything going for him. Um, Verse 22 tells us that he's wealthy. It says he has great possessions. He's doing well as far as the world is concerned. Um, And not only does he look good from the world's perspective, but he is doing well religiously. Uh, He has at least got enough of a public reputation that he can claim to have kept the commandments of God. Um, In verses 18 and 19, Jesus mentions the, the second half of the Ten Commandments. We call this the second table of the law. And Jesus mentions the second table of the law. These are the laws that pertain to how we treat other people. Uh, How we speak with others, how we engage with others, how we love others, whether we hate our neighbor, those sorts of things. And the first table deals with our duties toward God. Jesus doesn't quote the first table, he quotes the second table to the man. It's like he's setting a very easy, low bar for him to meet. And as far as the second table of the law is concerned, as far as he's concerned, this man is very persuaded that he's doing great. Let's assume something for a moment. Let's assume he's right. Let's. Let's assume that he has somehow managed to keep the second table of the law for the sake of discussion. Let's let's pretend that he's done it. Let's let, what an achievement, by the way, to keep all of the second table of the Ten Commandments. Why is he here? Why is he? Why is he here to talk to Jesus if he has such an amazing achievement? Because none of those things are enough, not even the belief that you have kept all of God's law is enough and the reason that we still look for satisfaction is because we have not found what we're looking for yet i'm not intentionally quoting you two, but i just did on accident (laughs) think of this modern scientific theory sees human beings as merely organisms and and as organisms at least in theory um organisms are quite simple They don't function simply, but what they need is very simple. Give the organism what it needs to survive and reproduce, and it should be happy as a clam, right? One of my favorite writers is Walker Percy, and Walker Percy opens one of his books asking this question. If all we are is mere organisms, then why are we happy in bad situations and miserable in good situations? And he gives two illustrations to to show what he means. Um, The first illustration he gives, he says, first, you have a housewife living in the suburbs, uh, an area with low crime and sunshine. She takes regular vacations uh, in her comfortable air conditioned house. She has a cabinet that is fully stocked with food, a, a refrigerator that has everything she could ever need. Her children go to a good school. She drives a comfortable vehicle. It's reliable. And yet, why does she periodically think about walking out into traffic? Couldn't be more comfortable, and yet, as miserable as can be. Why? Percy's answer is, because she is not a mere organism. Give her all the right inputs, and the output is not happiness. And that's because we are not mere organisms. The second thing Percy gives is as an, as an example of a man who sits on his porch in Gulfport, Mississippi, uh, while in the distance, an approaching hurricane is bearing down on him, and he's never felt more alive. Why do we feel good in bad situations and bad in good situations? As a Christian, Percy's answer is, we are not mere organisms. Evolutionary theory has us all wrong. Atheistic materialism gets us wrong. An organism, if it gets the right inputs, then it gives a happy output. But we are not just things that need to be fed and watered and to accumulate. If we did, then many of us would be perfectly happy. We are people instead who are made in the image of God. And we are complicated. We have deeper needs because we were made to know God. And as long as we're alienated from him, as long as there is sin in our lives, as long as there is sin in the world, there is going to be discord. You can have all the things in the world and still be empty. This man comes to Jesus. This seems to be a man who's followed the material path as far as he can, and he still finds himself bankrupt. None of those external things seem to have brought him what he knows he needs most. And so, you know, this rich young man has had a life of fantastic inputs, and yet he still searches. Why? Why is he still searching? Because he isn't a mere organism. There is more to life than having things. And he senses it, so he comes to Jesus The response of Jesus, the response that Jesus gives to him is a response of love. I think to some people it may not feel like a very loving response, but Jesus' response is driven by love. In Mark's telling of this same story, he adds something about this meeting. He says, Jesus looking at him, loved him. And now Matthew doesn't include that, but Mark includes it. Jesus looking at him, loved him. He loves him, but he also calls him to do something hard. See, love doesn't always tell someone what they want to hear. Often love means telling them the truth that they don't want to hear. This man really doesn't want to hear what Jesus is saying. It's why he walks away sad. In love, here's what Jesus does for this man. He sets him up for this. He gives him the opportunity. He gives him the opportunity to abandon his things, abandon his stuff, abandon all those idols. Uh, I don't usually quote the Christmas Carol by uh, Charles Dickens, but you remember Jacob Marley covered with all of those chains and those lock boxes and all of those burdens that he accumulated through all of his life. Here Jesus is, and he's saying you can you can lose all of that right now. Go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus is inviting him to become his disciple. Jesus knows what this man needs. Jesus invites this man. You know, you've heard that old definition of of insanity. It's doing the same failed thing over and over and hoping to get a different result. Well, Jesus is giving an invitation to abandon what hasn't been working for this man. He's giving him the opportunity to abandon his insanity and come and follow me. The response from the man is sadness. He hears good news from the mouth of Jesus and he's disheartened because the answer he got from Jesus is not what he expected. He already knows what he wanted to hear from Jesus and Jesus won't do it. He won't give it to him. He's been able to attain so many things. He's been able to work and hard and gain so much. This is not the answer that he was longing for. He thought Jesus would tell him to do something he was already prepared to do. And so verse 22 tells us that he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He comes to him with a happy face, glad hearted enthusiastic. I'm willing to do anything, Jesus. Just tell me what it is. But he also wants to hold back. It's a He wants to have a restrained love. He wants to have a moderate love. I want to have a moderate love of you, Jesus. I'll give you anything I'm prepared to give, just not the thing that you want. How many of us can, can relate? We, we want to love Jesus moderately. And so we Struggle to surrender our finances or we won't give our thought lives over to God. We won't we won't hand to God the way we use our phones or our our devices. We we keep things for ourselves. We we domesticate our sins so that we can still have them. Uh, We hold back something from Jesus and we keep a secret life because there's still something there for us. And we've decided we want to keep it like this man. And so he goes away. He can't, he can't follow the call of Jesus. In this moment, so many modern people, I think, would do this. They would look at this guy and say, good for him. Look, look at that man. Now he's free. Now he can live how he wants. Now he isn't being ruled over by some tyrannical religious system. This is a free man. But they would be wrong. He is not Free. He is very much a slave. Cut off from Jesus, the passage says he went away sorrowful. This man doesn't look like a free man at all, does he? He's still very much enslaved. And so what's the danger? The danger in point one is the danger of loving anything more than Christ. And Jesus is giving him an out right now. He gives all of us an out. The second point here is is the warning. After this man leaves... Jesus immediately tells the disciples what the takeaway is. In verse 23, he makes a comment. He says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The lesson that Jesus sees here is is this. What has happened to this man is proof in action that money is an obstacle to the life of costly abandonment that Christ calls us to. Um, Here's what one commentator says about this. He says, Jesus Christ is saying money has such a power to blind us spiritually. That is so great that anybody with any kind of money will automatically be blind to the gospel of the kingdom. And therefore, nobody will will with any money will ever be saved unless God directly intervenes. You know, we can think of common sense reasons for why this is the case. Uh, One reason is very sensible, but I've, I've already quoted you too. Might as well quote Bob Dylan. When you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. I mean, that, that makes sense, right? It explains uh, why it is the case that it's so hard to give up things and why it's so easy when you've got nothing to follow. But that's common sense. But of, of course, the opposite is also true. When you have a lot, you have a lot to lose. How tempting it is to not do anything too risky. Into, because we're afraid of endangering our position, or we're afraid of da- endangering our comforts. Now, Calvin, Calvin does something very helpful here because it's easy to read this sermon and think, "Okay, I know what the sermon's supposed to be." Pastor's supposed to beat up on the rich people, and he's supposed to make the poor people feel really good. Well, Calvin says this. He says, "Actually, there's a lesson here for both." He says, "There is a lesson here for the wealthy." And by the way, our standard of living in the West is so extraordinary that in some ways, this is all of us. Um, if you have a roof over your head, if you have running water, electricity, air conditioning, you have food to eat, then he's talking about you. But even those who live below the poverty line in our country have extraordinary comfort and 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 wealth compared to most people who have ever lived and many people who still even now live in the world. Um. And here's what Calvin says to those who are wealthy. He says that if we aren't willing to say goodbye to all of this stuff for the sake of Jesus, then it isn't Jesus that we love. It's the stuff that Jesus provides. And if that's the the case, then we're showing our idolatry. Um, We don't like to think about it, but what if God called you to give up your air conditioning or your television or your electricity? I love all those things. So those are, I'm talking about pointed things. If you won't answer the call When the call comes, then you hold something more precious than God, right? That's that's idolatry. And Jesus' point is that the wealthy are in constant danger of idolatry. They're in constant danger. And Jesus' words here remind us that we have to drop all of this in a moment if the call comes forth. That's something for us to challenge ourselves within our own hearts. Would I do it? But Calvin also says there's a second lesson here, and that's for those who are poor. Because he says, just like the rich person can look to their money for their physical security, a poor person can take shelter in their poverty and think that they are spiritually in a safe position because they're poor. Um, Here's what he says. uh, The the, the wealthy say, ah, yes, the wealthy are so awful. It's me who really is really beloved of God. I've got nothing else. I deny myself far more than they do. I am sure that I have a kind of security because I'm not as materialistic as my neighbor over there. Very tempting thought if you don't have much. A sort of odd pride that can assault the poor as well as the wealthy. You see, we're all in danger of pride no matter where we are, if we're wealthy or we're poor. But poverty doesn't necessarily equal spiritual favor from God any more than financial wealth means spiritual favor from God. There's a warning here for all of us wherever we find ourselves. And this is point two. Point two issues all of us a warning. You know, it's already hard to enter the kingdom of God. Money makes it even harder. Well, we've seen the danger in point one. We see the warning in point two. And finally, point three ends on a note of hope. When the Disciples hear Jesus' lesson. Their response is shock. They they think this is kind of crazy talk here, actually, because in their minds— Who could be more secure and favored by God than people who are wealthy? The wealth is a sign of God's favor. The wealth is a sign that somehow this person doesn't deserve to be punished. The mentality of Job's friends is very much alive and well. If things are going well with you, then you must have been doing well. And if things are going poorly with you, then you must have been living quite poorly. That's the thought life of Job's friends. And so the disciples have this same mindset: If you've got somebody who's doing well and they seemingly are favored by God and they can't get into heaven, then who can? What makes Jesus' warning so alarming to them is this sort of inference they draw. They, they, this is the inference. If things are so dangerous for this good and wealthy man, how on earth can we poor folks even hope to inherit eternal life? This is a real honest question. I, I don't think they're asking a rhetorical question. They expect an answer. And Jesus' answer doesn't put away their fears. Instead, he basically confirms what they're afraid of. He never, he never minimizes the problem. In verse 27, he, doesn't, he solves the problem without minimizing the problem. Because in verse 27, he says, with man, it is impossible. In other words, you are right so far if you're just thinking about man. The situation really is as serious as we perceive. He's confirming their concern. From a human perspective, things really should be hopeless. All things considered, nobody should ever love Jesus more than money. Why would we? Why would we? We're sinners. By nature, we love ourselves and we love making our own security. Or at least we love making our own sense of security. But here's where so, – so he doesn't minimize the problem. He, he If anything, he escalates the problem. And then he brings the hope in though in the second half of verse 26. He says, but with God all things are possible. So there is hope here. And the hope is not – that we, the hope is that we aren't alone in this. The hope is that we aren't left to ourselves. You have forgotten, disciples, that God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The hope is that God can do and he can work in whatever way is needed, even for a very stubborn, hard heart. And that means that none of us should ever look at someone and think, well, they're too far gone. Well, there's no hope there. Nothing, nothing's going to change that person. Um, there was a famous atheist named Anthony Flew. I remember as a teenager, I, I read many debates between Anthony Flew and Christian apologists. Um, they would argue about the existence of God. And I remember Anthony Flew offering these the most vituperative, bitter denunciations of God that you could possibly imagine. And yet a few years ago, he wrote a book about how he had changed his mind. And the book was called There is a God. We live in a universe where all things are possible, where even the heart of Anthony Flew can be changed. It's impossible. It, it's, po- it's impossible in this case. Um, uh, to, to come to the Lord if he doesn't change change your heart. But the lesson here is don't count anyone out. Don't even count out Anthony Flew. Don't even count out the most hard-headed atheist you know. Don't count out the most dedicated Muslim that you know. The most entrenched sinner may have his heart strangely warmed and changed by just hearing the word of God, by the work of God on the heart. That's how you came to Christ. You may not remember it. You may be so so young you don't remember it. And yet scripture tells us what our hearts were like before we came to the Lord. In the end, Jesus doesn't strengthen his disciples by minimizing the problem. He doesn't minimize the problem and say, oh, well, actually, the human heart's not so bad. Actually, Uh, your attachment to things isn't really as dramatic as I'm making it sound. Uh, The danger of of wealth and riches is really not that bad. He never does that. Instead, he, he escalates. He shows us how bad it really is. He doesn't strengthen them by minimizing the problem, but by maximizing the power of the problem solver. The answer is in God. The hope is in God and his omnipotent grace. And that means that our confidence is not in situations or dispositions. Our confidence is in the God in whom all things are possible. In the end, after all of this has been said, after the danger, the warning, after the hope have all been set out for us, Peter has something to say as usual. And Peter points out that the disciples have done what this man couldn't bring himself to do. Unlike him, they have left homes and jobs and security to follow Jesus. And the response of Jesus in verse 29, if I could paraphrase it, he says, you left all that stuff, it's true, and I want you to know it's absolutely worth it. Imagine how incredible something has to be that, you, that it can actually be worth it to lose all that you have, and yet at the end of it, you would say, absolutely worth it. That thing has to be infinitely precious. Jesus, Jesus calls people to yield the idea that their life is going to be filled with worldly security and comfort. That's a hard thing to give up. And he, he tells us instead that we should, we should place our hope and our joy and our security outside of ourselves. Not in us. Not in what we have achieved. Not in what we can do. Not in our own goodness. Because he knows we won't find it there. He says, look to me. Find your security in me. And that means letting go of the world to provide those things. Some of you have felt in the past few weeks as your homes have been shaken and your securities that you thought you had crumbled in one way or another. Um, You have felt your vulnerability. You felt how easy it can be to lose what you've been building. Don't fight that vulnerability. Embrace that vulnerability. Feel it. Jesus would have this man do that today. This man wanted to have everything plus Jesus. And the lesson that he learns is that to have the one, you have to let go of the other. You can't have two gods. You can only have one. By telling this man to let go, he is offering something that goes beyond stuff and things and security. He is offering himself. Let's pray together. Father, we have no greater need than to know that we have eternal life and there is no worldly thing that will bring us peace. Peace comes to us as a gift, as a miraculous work by you in our hearts. We can have all the worldly comforts that there are. We can have jobs and families, a roof over our head, food on the table. We can even have money in our bank accounts or under our mattresses. But if we don't have you, We have nothing worthwhile, and like the rich man, we will go away sad. Would you strike us deeply with the conviction of our need for you and our insecurity apart from Jesus? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.